Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This is the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Ian Stasikevich, a contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine. In this episode, I speak with cinematographer Peter Deming ASC about his work on the film Cabin in the Woods. Mr. Deming's resume is marked with serious dark dramas like Mulholland Drive, Lost Highway, and The Jacket, but it's also splattered with scary yet humorous films like The Evil Dead 2, Screams 2 through 4, and Drag Me to Hell. Cabin in the Woods rests peacefully in the latter category. And now, on with the interview. Cabin in the Woods has been seen by many as a deconstruction of the horror film genre. There are subtle nods to tongue-in-cheek horror films that you've worked on, in, in particular The Evil Dead 2 and Scream. Is there a specific method by which you approach the visual deconstruction of the films that uh, are being deconstructed thematically? We set out in the sort of conventional horror film sections of the movie to play it pretty straight, you know, with um, tips here and there, just content-wise, that this isn't really what you think it is. But on the surface, it needed to be both subject matter-wise and visually sort of what you expected it to be, you know, as far as a kids in the woods in a cabin movie because you needed to believe that you know that part of it and then you find out the twist I mean you're hinted all along really from the opening of the movie but it isn't really till the third act that you sort of find out what's really going on the horror sections the the leading sections that sort of suck you into the movie needed to be uh, by convention really uh, what you're used to seeing what are people used to seeing? Like, what, what are some of these horror movie conventions uh, that you tried to play by? It's all the things that they, you usually play with. I mean, they, there's, you know, four or five teenagers on a weekend at a cabin in the middle of the woods. Um, you know, there's, uh, <laughs> you know, they tell scary stories. They... You know, there's sounds, there's things going on that are unexplained. Uh, you know, they, you know, and they play, they play around with that a little bit in the film. You know, it's, we should stick together versus we should split up, you know, and they manipulate that part of it. And the control element of the film is manipulating all those sort of beats that normally occur that most times the audience would sit there and say, well, why... Why are you splitting up? Why don't you stay together? You know, you guys are idiots. You're going to all die. So it sort of tries to explain that in a little, little, in a sense, and also it, you know, has some fun with it at the same time. From a cinematographic perspective, what are some of the conventions that viewers maybe subconsciously have come to expect? Visually, I think you're used to sort of... um, you know, a subjective camera, a roaming camera, you know, maybe it's um, a lot of steady cam. you know, following people, being a little bit claustrophobic so that, you know, when the frame is invaded, 
for a for a scare that it's uh, you know that it's a real surprise and you know lighting wise something fairly fairly dark and I think uh, Drew Goddard the director really liked really dark <laughs> in this film and we I think we got pretty dark on a lot of it so you know it's sort of the unseen and the unknown visually whether it's through focal length choices or lighting choices that you uh, you know leave room for for the scare as it were how much of that can be accomplished with the lighting choices and the lens choices because with a lot of films like this it is the invasion of the frame and the terror of the unknown so how can how effective can one be with these sorts of subtle uses of the camera well, I think, you know, using the focal length and the camera in sort of a scary movie fashion, uh, I think you have a lot more leeway in with the camera. Uh, I mean, depending on how much control you have over the visuals vis-a-vis the lighting, you know, whether you're day or night or, or what it is. I mean, there's an example I would bring up in the film where Marty's out in front of the cabin uh, relieving himself and he looks up and knows there's no stars, and even though the night is clear and how odd that is. And, um, you know, Kurt's character basically invades the frame from the right and runs right into him. Well, you know, if you deconstruct that, it's obviously he sees him, and why would he run into him? But, you know, we're both having fun with that sort of classic scary moment, and also by the time you sort of are able to think about it and rationalize it, it's too late, we've already scared you, so we've accomplished the goal. There is an attitude, I think, a little by little through the film of having fun with those conventions, even though they make no sense at all when you sort of try and analyze it. How real did you want to make this film? And how real was it meant to look? Because you are playing with a type of artifice within it. Within the cabin, it's meant to look, you know, very real. I think that once we sort of tipped off to the control element in the story, that we we could get away with things. For instance, um, you know, when Kurt and Jules go out into the woods and she says, oh, it's a little chilly, you know, that's controlled, you know, they sort of boost up the libido artificially and then uh, she says oh it's too dark out here and you know you sort of have license to just dim up a light in the middle of the forest and and have the audience not only believe it but enjoy it you know to laugh with us at that point I think at you know how these characters are being controlled and I think that's you know that's sort of an unusual uh, opportunity in a film to have theatrical moments in, lighting-wise, have theatrical moments within a very, up until that point, real story. When you were approached to shoot Cabin in the Woods, what were some of the conversations that you had with the director, Drew Goddard, and co-writer, Joss Whedon? You know, having been involved in one of the Evil Dead movies and also the Scream series, which sort of deconstructed horror in a very different fashion, I was sort of uh, intrigued by it. and. Um, and I like doing films that I can also learn from the writers and the director uh, about 
you know, maybe conventions that I don't understand. You know, I would say one thing about Drew, he definitely understood the genre. He understood how to make fun of it, and he also understood his audience very well. I think those three things really play out. I would prefer to do a film like this than, say, a high-key comedy, because I th just think photographically it presents a lot more challenges for a cinematographer than, you know, those other kinds of films. And it's and you learn more when you're pushed. And, uh, you know, certainly this story had a lot of twists that no one ever seen before, so. Was there a style that they brought with them that you were able to adapt to the style that comes from the work that you've already done? Well, I think it's it's a combination, you know. they They had a style that they were used to working in, and I think part of the reason they were looking at me is that I had a history in the genre as well. So, you know, it's sort of those two met, you know, there was no sort of overwhelming style on one or the other. You know, the film was, I think the budget was about 30 million. You know, obviously there are a lot of visual effects and more makeup effects than I've ever seen in a movie. I mean, it was uh, sort of staggering, the number of creatures and you know, goblins and things that we had. It was this, the call sheet was pretty humorous sometimes, and and we and we built some pretty big sets. So I think it's they really stretched that budget pretty far for what's on screen. What were some of the challenges that uh, were posed with the making of this film? Well, I think anytime you're <laughs> you're out in the woods at night and there's no discernible source of light. You know, it's always a challenge to make that believable. That's sort of the cinematographer's worst nightmare. Um, and so you sort of have to create an environment that you can see what's going on, but doesn't look artificial, even though by definition it is artificial. And even more so in this film, because it's all manufactured for the, for the purpose of the story. And I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, there's always there's always things in every film uh, that uh, are a challenge. In what ways do you feel that you were pushed uh, in your in your work? We wanted the, a certain amount of mood in the film. I think when we got down to the basement and some of those scenes, um, Drew wanted it really super dark. I you know I think we accomplished that. Maybe went a little too far in a few cases, but. Uh, it's, um, he wanted that reality of darkness rather than sort of a, you know, movie artifice lighting. What do you mean that you went too dark? When Dana initially comes down, it's basically her and a flashlight and whatever sort of bounce back we could get from that flashlight. I mean, there was very little, we had some light sort of uh, streaking through the floor but didn't really accomplish much as far as seeing her. Uh, and then as, as the scene goes on, you know, a lantern is lit, and we sort of um, sort of have license to bring up the level just, just enough to see what's happening. Coming off of films like Scream, do you find that you develop your own personal methods of deconstruction? The Scream movies and Cabin are sort of two different styles of deconstruction. I think Scream was more of a sort of... Uh, plot deconstruction and dialogue deconstruction where Cabin was also that but played more played more than Scream did with 
the visual uh, deconstruction and the sort of the big picture of why is this happening? You know, why are these people, for fairly intelligent people, why are they acting so stupidly? And you sort of get an explanation on that, which I think is pretty interesting. You know, there's a few shots in the film that sort of classic horror shots that you expect something to happen, like when Dana goes down in the basement, you saw her feet going down the stairs. Well, I can recall personally doing that shot in other horror films where, you know, arms come out of the black and grab the feet and they fall and then, you know, bad things happen. You know, we tried to do as many sort of classic horror shots as we could and not necessarily have them pay off the way they normally do. Were there any conventions in terms of the way that you lit and photographed the film that you brought from other films like The Evil Dead or Scream or the work that you did maybe with David Lynch? Um, and if somebody wanted to create a similar mood, do you have a style that you reserve for this kind of film? I think the style sort of comes out of the particular project. I think, um, you know, Evil Dead 2 is much more of a you know, tended a little more towards comic book. I mean, Sam and I, um, Sam especially wanted sort of, you know, sort of a old movie, scary shadows and light that was sort of unexplained, but just sort of created a, an environment where Cabin, I think, was much more reality-based in its lighting. But it's, I think you're still lighting, you know, in a very realistic way, it's just sort of the mood of that lighting, and it's, um, you know, like I talked about before, like sort of keeping the camera moving. Maybe you're behind characters instead of front of them. You know, sort of anticipatory shots that, together with, say, the soundtrack, that you expect something to happen and sort of keeps you on your seat. I mean, and a lot of times nothing does happen, but it it keeps your anticipation up for the moment where you, that's, that you do get a scare. I want to ask you about the Lynch films, uh, Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive, and how these films fit into not necessarily a scary movie genre, but there is an element of psychological horror and body horror that they convey. Uh, how would you apply that same line of thinking that's less about the visceral scare and more about the smart scare? Well, I think, you know, Lighting-wise, some of the same rules apply. You sort of create light and dark. You know, you create a mood that hopefully is a little bit ominous. In the case of Lost Highway, we there are a lot of uh, situations where I wouldn't, you know, you'd normally use backlight where I, I didn't put any in. You know, I remember one where Pete was sort of on the phone and behind him is this dark dining room. Well. You know, a lot of times you'd maybe throw a little light in that to give it some depth or give him some backlight to give it some depth. But we just found it was much creepier to have him lit against a largely back, black background. You know, sort of left of the frame was the phone and a piece of wall. But then it was this sort of big void in the frame that he would pass in front of occasionally. And it's sort of... Um, and we just felt it was creepy. You didn't know what was in there. You didn't know if something would come out. You know, it's like these people are stalking him, and and one of them one of them is on the phone. And we've established earlier in the film that this particular personality can be in two places at once. So, you know, it was sort of playing with 
hopefully that subconscious remembrance of how creepy this particular character is. Do these ideas and perspectives come from other films, or do you and the directors and the writers draw on the things that are scary to you? I think some of it comes from other films, um, but ideally it comes from the story you're telling and maybe something, like you say, that's scary to me or scary to the director or something that the, you know, the cast comes up with. Um, I mean, you're constantly looking for new ways to achieve the same effect. And anytime you can do that, I think it's, it's, you know, it's good, whether it comes from the set or the story or the characters or, or someone's past, you know, all those things have worked in the past to sort of create the same level of tension and, and scare. Can you talk a little bit about the physical production of the film? What was the ratio of location work to stage work? Uh, I'd say that, you know, we shot in Vancouver. The ratio from location to stage was probably 70% location, I would say, uh, just off the top of my head. I mean, the certainly the, all the cabin exteriors, most of the woods were location, with the exception of uh, Jules's death scene, which was on a stage. And then there's a scene uh, where Dana makes it to uh, the dock and sort of sort of the water's edge. Uh, most of that was on stage, but the rest of it, you know, was in was on location. Certainly, the whole beginning, you know, was on location. And then as the film went on, in most of that became set. Uh, the control room, you know, the underground dungeon, whatever you want to call it, you know, those th those things were all uh, created on stage. Some of the wood stuff we created on stage just because we were shooting in a time of year that it was really prohibitive to have, you know, a character in the water for a prolonged period of time or a character uh, disrobing in the middle of the night. It was just too cold. Let's talk a little bit about the different environments in Cabin in the Woods, uh, like the office, the control room. It seems like it's meant to evoke this Spartan, almost mundane sort of day job-like effect, like an everyday office. But on the other hand, there's something uh, subtly sinister about it. What's the visual vocabulary of these scenes? There's a couple things. One, of course, we wanted it to be completely opposite from the world that they were controlling. And I think if you, you know, it's clearly most of the operation is underground, except for what we're sort of introduced to at the very beginning of the film. And that, you know, we never really talked about it, but maybe for appearance sake, for the rest of the world, it has to appear like a regular office that people go to and dress in white shirts and black pants and, and do their jobs. And then as you sort of descend further and further down, it gets very specific, uh, particularly because, as you learn, that the, the people they are sent working for are below them, physically in the earth. So, certainly that is uh, part of that look, and I think it needed to be institutional. It needed to be some of it needed to be high key, as opposed to you know the scary world they were they were controlling, and you know, just needed to have a level of technology that made the story believable. 
Are there any scenes in the film, uh, in Cabin, that stand out for you as principally evocative of the look and style that you were trying to achieve? There are a couple of scenes that sort of, sort of dredge up the cabin, <laughs> the cabin genre. You know, certainly when they first pull up during the day, even though it's daytime, you know, it, it's sort of a creepy-looking place. The scene with the, the whole cast inside when they're playing Truth or Dare... And then sort of later on, I guess, when they're on the run and they, and they leave the cabin, you know, those are sort of, I, wanna, I don't want to say archetypal, but they're certainly of that world. How important is it for people to identify these visual cues as tropes? Uh, we keep coming back to doing what's appropriate for the story, but you're also playing on the films that you assume people have seen already in order to get the joke. So... Where do you draw the line between creating something original for the story and trying to play to people's pre-existing notions? You know, you have to give them the tip of the iceberg as far as familiarity with the genre and things they're used to seeing. And then hopefully the rest of that iceberg is, is new territory or new treatment of, of similar territory. Uh, technically, uh, this seems like a very straightforward film in a lot of ways. It's, it's not overtly styled. Was there anything that was done photographically or, or technically that really stands out for you? You know, we finished this film. We shot this film in uh, winter, spring of '09, And then we probably finished post on it by the end of the year. So say, you know, beginning of 2010. We had, the film was cut. We had done the answer print. We'd done the check prints. And then, of course, literally two years later, the film comes out. Now, technically speaking, we're printing on the same print stock. At least it has the same number that Kodak gives it. And the print should match. So having been through this one before, I said we have to you know, make a new print from the intermediate and compare it to the check print from two years ago, which we did, and they were vastly different. Uh, they were dark, they were contrasty. I mean, there were scenes that you couldn't see what was going on. And sort of what I expected to happen. You know, even though, in theory, the film print stock didn't change, it changed quite a bit. And that's, uh, I think, a, a real danger. You know, when you finish a film, if it's not going to come out right away or within the next two months, I think you have to really be um, vigilant about it. And so Drew and I went back into the lab and, you know, talked to the people at Deluxe about it. And the opinion was to sort of uh, make a new IN and to pull process it. We would try that. And if that didn't work, we could maybe flash it because the contrast buildup was severe. And, and uh, so we talked to the chemists at Deluxe and they came up with a, a formula. And I have to say... They nailed it the first time out. I mean, the, the next print we saw, you know, we did one reel. The next print we saw was almost exactly like the print from two years earlier. So then they went through and make, made new INs on all the reels. So we were able to match it fairly closely. And I think it's, uh, you know, I'm grateful that, that Lionsgate, who eventually released the film, was willing to do that because it could have been... I think creatively a disaster, and I think you know ultimately it would have really hurt the release and, and the audience 
because uh, they're lost story points that would have been lost. And it's, uh, you know, anything, anytime something sits that long, you have to check those things because, uh, you know, we averted disaster. In between the time you shot the film and the time of its theatrical release, uh, there's been a larger shift from traditional print releases to more digital releases. Uh, a lot of theaters have converted in the last three years, so did you have to take that into account as well? Uh, not as much. I mean, we our main our main concern is with you know the uh, the film print, you know, the photochemical print. When we looked at the DCP, uh, it looked fine. In fact. Uh, some scenes look better than the film print. So you made the DCP at the same time as the original DI? Yeah, we made the DCP uh, at the exact same time we made the intermediates for the release. How important was it to actually do the film print at all? Uh, wouldn't it have been easier just to go with a strictly digital release, given that so many of the theaters are equipped for that kind of exhibition? Well, I think, you know, if the distributor came and said, we're 100% digital as far as our release, then yeah, but you know, there's still there's still quite a bit of film projection out there, so it needed to be represented, you know, in an accurate fashion. Is there a takeaway for you as a filmmaker as you move into other projects? Uh, I assume this probably won't be the last genre film that you do. I think that it's just one of those genres that sort of always has an opportunity to have a new twist. You know, it sort of went to deconstruction you know, in various forms, or it went into so-called torture movies, which I don't care for at all. In fact, I haven't really watched any of those. They don't really appeal to me on the surface in any way. And, you know, in fact, in Cabin, the what little gore is in it, I always question whether they needed it. I understand now why, and, and I credit Drew for understanding that from the beginning. But it's it's never been sort of the part of the genre that I've liked. I mean, I always think you can get away with less is more in terms of violence, I guess, and still achieve what you want to achieve in the scare zone. But, you know, there's a lot of ticket goers out there who enjoy the gore part of it, and that's why they go. So you have to play all those cards out. But if I can, <laughs> if I can say this in a sort of cerebral horror context, I think, you know, someone will come up with another way to take it that'll be, you know, just as entertaining. That was cinematographer Peter Deming ASC talking about his work on the film Cabin in the Woods. Thanks for listening. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.